Howdy, friends, and welcome to a hard-boiled episode of The George Sanders Show. Uh, tying in with Film Noir Month, which is something that uh, I'm doing at my house, where I'm watching a film noir every single day for 31 days. Uh, Sean, you've graciously agreed to jump in on that for this episode, where we'll be talking about two films starring Robert Mitchum, 1950s Where Danger Lives, directed by John Farrow, and 1975's Farewell, My Lovely, a Raymond Chandler adaptation uh, from director Dick Richards. Yeah, uh, you, you really had to twist my arm to get me to, to watch some Robert Mitchum film noir. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was difficult. I, I know, behind the scenes, uh, I had to threaten your family. Um, there was a lot of, you know, actually kind of film noir type shenanigans that went down. Uh, I drugged you. Uh, you woke up in a, you know, a ditch somewhere and, uh, yeah. I got hit in the back of the head so many times. <laughs> you were concussed I'm for severe, days. I, you know, it, it'll be hard to tell given my, my general podcasting skills, but I'm severely concussed for this episode. <laughs> uh, well, I thank you nonetheless for uh, agreeing to this. Um, I think it's going to be a fun show. Mitchum's going to be our person of the week, and uh, Film Noir will be our essential, because uh, we have absolutely no, absolutely no imagination whatsoever. Um, <laughs> but that's quite all right. Head trauma uh, will do that to a, to a man. Yeah. It, uh, speaking of head trauma, we'll also be listening to music from Robert Mitchum uh, throughout mm. the show. You tracked down uh, the, w the two albums that he recorded. Uh, one is a, a Calypso album. Yes. Which which uh, we might not be hearing from because it's a little offensive, insane, <laughs> uh, uh, appallingly wrong. Yeah, I you know you you sent me a couple of the tracks and I didn't actually think it was Robert Mitchum singing because, uh, well, it didn't sound like Robert Mitchum. Let me say that much. Imagine that, an old drunk white guy doing a Harry Belafonte impression. <laughs> that's what it sounds like. That's right. Or or me on a Tuesday night is, yes. is what we call it around here. <laughs> um, so we'll, I think we'll be hearing from the country album, which is a little more palatable. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but before we get to all that, uh, let's let's hear a clip from the first film uh, where we were talking about where danger lives. What's the matter? Nothing. Why are you looking at your eyes? If you take my advice, you'll ditch me right now. Why do you say that? I've got a concussion. I was afraid of it last night. For a while, I hoped I'd be wrong, but the pains in my head and the slow respiration, dilated pupils. Will it get better? Well, perhaps, but not before it gets worse. You're going to have to watch me pretty carefully. I may talk rationally, but my decisions may not make much sense. I'll make the decisions. Is that the worst that'll happen? No, a slow paralysis of the extremities sets in. You know, uh, fingers, hand, feet, maybe one entire side. Well, that's the diagnosis. You want to hear any more? God. It will probably end in final collapse and coma. That usually happens anywhere between 24 and 48 hours after the cause. It's a form of compression on the brain. During the unconscious period, I may die or I may come out of it. I've seen that happen. Isn't there some medicine we can get? No. No medication will help. There are things that would keep me awake, but we need a prescription. But you're a doctor. 
Prescription by Jeff Cameron, M.D. Wanted for murder. Oh, Jeff, what'll we do? Just have to keep moving, I guess. Better get you across the border before I pass out. I won't leave you. I'll be with you always. All right, so Where Danger Lives was part of a, a series of, of films noir that, that Robert Mitchum starred in at RKO in the, uh, in the immediate post-war years, like from 1946 or so until the early 50s. And uh, it's not, uh, you know, it's not the best of those. Um, but it's not, it's not bad at all. That's my review. <laughs> uh, <laughs> End of show. Uh, it's directed by John Farrow, who is a who is a competent studio director. Uh, it has a lot of like the the behind uh, below the title talent in 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 common with with some of the better Mitchell Mark RKO noirs like uh, like Out of the Past, but it's uh, it's lacking in a few things. Uh, most notably is uh, the female lead, who's yes. really not that good, but she was dating Howard Hughes at the time. So anyway, uh, Hughes was the head of RKO, of course. Uh, Mitchum plays a doctor who falls in love with a pretty girl who tried to kill herself. Uh, they start dating. Uh, he goes with her to tell her father, who is very rich, that they want to be married. And her father actually turns out to be her husband. And even more shockingly, he turns out to be Claude Rains. And then he ends up dead after beating Mitchum around the head. Mitchum wanders off. And then when he comes back, Rains is no more. Uh, the two of them flee, attempt to flee to Mexico, seeing uh, 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 cops out to get them at every turn. Eventually, they, they end up in a seedy hotel on the border, and Mitchum actually figures out that he was the sap all along, which we all figured out about 45 minutes earlier. <laughs> but that is, that is, that is film noir. Dan it's where danger lives, and danger lives in a woman. That's where. A crazy woman. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this has all of the you know, the tropes of a film noir, you know, kind of cookie cutter film noir, um, for better or for worse, you know, it's got, it's got, um, you know, questionable psychoanalysis going on. It's got, uh, questionable choices from the lead, uh, <laughs> where he puts himself into more trouble than is necessary, uh, at pretty but, much but every it, turn. It's such a clever way to, to get around that though, by having him be severely concussed through the entire film. He like, he even says, you know, when he's describing the symptoms of a concussion, because he's a doctor, um, and these are not the actual symptoms of a concussion. No, they don't no, actually they do happen this way at all, but because if they did, then then football would even be even more no. despicable than it already is. Exactly, um, but he says that he he may he may act normally, but his decision making will be questionable. And we're like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then I will be paralyzed on half of my body. Or, yeah, uh, yeah, which is yeah. is fun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, that, that actually happens near, near the end of the film. He, his, uh, his symptoms have to progress because, you know, that's how 
you know, tension escalates in the film as he becomes progressively worse and worse. They, they need to, he needs to get her across the border before he falls into a coma because that's what happens when you have a concussion is you just get worse and worse and worse until you get paralyzed and then you fall into a coma. And then you die. And then you die. Yeah. Um, but uh, when he's walking around paralyzed, I couldn't help but think of, of Mitchum in, in El Dorado the the Howard mm. Hawks movie where he has like the injured leg, but from scene to scene he can't remember which leg is supposed to be injured, <laughs> right. uh, so it just keeps switching. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I, I, that's a good point. Uh, I actually I, love- I actually enjoyed this movie quite a bit for for being what it is, which is which is a, a B level film noir with some A level talent. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. It's very forgettable. I mean, I watched it last night, and, uh, you know, it's pretty hazy already uh, for me. <laughs> and part of that might be that I've been watching a noir every day, so elements of, of all of them are kind of jumbling together. Mm-hmm. Um, the best part about this thing, and Mitchum is great. Um, you know, he you know, he carries the movie. I mean, if, if, if you had a lesser lead in that role, uh, it, this, would, this would not be worth watching in my opinion well but, yeah especially since since faith domergue is is so she's really poor yeah she's just really really bland yeah uh she, you don't buy for a second that he would fall madly in love with her um the best part though and i say this including including mitchum uh claude rains and he's he's not he's in the one scene and i was so disappointed uh with that he died um because he's so good in in the what four minutes of screen time he has it's unfair it's unfair by the time he by the time he came on i had forgotten that he was in the movie uh he doesn't appear to like what 20 25 minutes in into the film and so when he did appear i'm like claude rains yes this is awesome and then you know he dies yeah um, he's supposed to and I, and you know it was cool that in a way that they got someone like claude rains because i was like okay he he can't actually be dead he's claude rains like so i had all these thoughts of like him you know he and her like planned this as a you know a ruse or whatever, and he's actually not really dead, but uh, then he just turned out to be dead, and I didn't get to see any more Claude Rain, so I was kind of bummed about that. But yeah, uh, I think I think this was kind of the the phase of of his career that that Reigns was in at this point, uh, unfortunately. Um, but you, you you mentioned that you don't see why Mitchum's character would would fall for for her, and. Uh, I, I totally agree, but I kind of love that the film just skips over all of that. Like, there's just no attempt at, at romance, at developing, like, a relationship between these two people. It's like they meet, he ditches his girlfriend to, to spend the night with her, and then it just jumps ahead in time to where they've been having this romance for weeks, and they're both in love, and they're, you know, ready to get married. Yeah, it, I mean, it, yeah, it, it definitely speeds along and cuts out the inessential malarkey um so i i I, sure i give it credit for that i guess and and i wonder if if that is intentional to just make the the plot move more quickly so we can have you know so much of the movie being this kind of chase sequence where they think they're being chased but they're not actually being chased which is a whole other you know level of of paranoid thriller beyond the plot that is really uh really effective 
Um, or it's just that they, they filmed those scenes and she was so terrible in them <laughs> that they, that they had to cut them out. Yeah. They're like, well, this isn't running. This isn't screening. Well, uh, that's possible that, yeah. you know, that's, <laughs> uh, yeah, she, she's, she's definitely the lesser, uh, lead here. And he ditches Maureen, uh, O'Sullivan, who's actually John Farrow's, uh, Wife. I think, yeah, they were together for a long, long time. Um, yeah. And she looks in, in the final shot of the film, she looks so much like Mia Farrow. It is, uh, I would, I was shocked because I've seen Marino Sullivan in a few other movies and I've never really noticed the, the resemblance before, but in those, in those last shots, it's like, oh yeah, that's, that's Mia Farrow's mom. Yeah. I, good point. I, I hadn't thought about that. Um, I will be talking about her and him a little bit later in the show, so I'll, I'll, I'll leave that alone, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, Okay, well, let's talk about the, that kind of the paranoid thing because I, I think that's like what's what's really you know that's the really special thing about the film is is this kind of world that that Pharaoh creates when when the couple is on the run they they keep seeing all of these like they've killed Reigns and they left him in the house but they think and they're trying to make their escape to get out of the country. Uh, but they don't know when Reigns is going to be discovered. So everywhere they go, they see cops, and they're so paranoid and they're so guilty about what they've done that they assume that everyone is after them, and it keeps in- ending up being totally innocent. Like they're in a used car lot trying to trade their cars, and a cop comes by, but the cop isn't interested in them at all, but they think he is, so they end up you know, trading their expensive Cadillac for like this 1920s pickup truck. Right. Or... You know, or when they're driving the pickup truck, they're they're going down a street and there's a roadblock and they're like, right. oh, my gosh, the cops are after us. And they go off on this side road and it turns out they're just stopping people to check if they have fruits and vegetables. <laughs> yeah. So it, it keeps leading them, you know, further and further out of like mainstream civilization, like from the airport. They, they have to go away. They have to trade their car for an older car. They have to get off the main highway. And they're just they just keep going down these these darker corners of America, just just slime and and disgusting to where they end up in this like you know burlesque house on this border town and just get totally screwed over by carnies which (laughs) is just is is really terrific like i i really enjoyed that i do like where they end up i i do i i feel like some of the journey was a little repetitive a little tedious um but i do like the yeah that they they meet this seedy guy in a um in a pawn shop, you know, she pawns her, you know, diamond necklace or something. And, uh, he, he, you know, sends them through this back alley to, a, like you said, a burlesque place that's going to then put her or put both of them into the back of like a circus truck that's going across the border, like at four in the morning or whatever. Um, and on top of the, the whole, um, confused paranoia that's going on um there's all there's also the fact that she is and you know we said this at the beginning but uh she literally is insane we're not we're not just saying that she's she's a crazy woman because women are crazy she's literally diagnosed and that's what claude rains was going to tell mitchum is that um his wife is actually uh certifiably bonkers and but, uh, but her insanity doesn't actually fit anything that we would recognize as insane like the her own the only indication you know other than her being psychotic is that she's seen therapists like and that's as far as we get in the diagnosis 
No, but well, what I was leading to was that um, she, throughout the movie, uh, thwarts any attempts by Mitchum to get any more information from the outside world because mm-hmm. she has this fear that, you know, it's going to be, you know, and it does. It comes out over the radio that she is insane um, and that would crumble her entire, you know, scheme with him to get across the border. Um, so that adds to the whole, you know, paranoia and mystery by the fact that they can't even hear you know they can't follow the lead if there was one because she's stopping at every attempt right. to do so yeah but yeah. anyway yeah it's it's <laughs> it's good stuff it's it's a it's a well constructed movie that that is is almost really good yeah i wouldn't go i wouldn't go there i it, it's it's fine it's it's inoffensive uh, I think it would. It, I think it would need a little more work beyond just replacing the the lead actress um, to to make it, you know, a, a top tier kind of film noir. But it, it's fine. It's totally fine. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, what you know? What else is fine? Yeah. Ro- Robert Mitchum singing country songs. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's hear one right now. Uh, this are we doing Whippoorwill here? Yes. All right. Take it away, Bobby. The night was young, and so were we Beneath the old magnolia tree And when you say, I love you so Will sang sweet and low. The moon was high. We lingered long. The whippoorwill went wild with song. But when you said that we must part, he struck a note that broke his heart. Poor whippoorwill. He had no choice You took away His lovely voice The leaves are brown The blossoms dead They tumble down Around my head My lonely heart Cries out for you The wind Is lonely too He had no choice You took away His lovely voice The leaves are brown The blossoms dead They tumble down Around my head My lonely heart Cries out for you The whippoorwill Here's lonely too That's a nice song. It's it would almost be pretty if it wasn't Robert Mitchum singing. Uh, <laughs> I think we're gonna we're gonna skip the news for this week because uh, as 
far as we know, the only really interesting things were the Oscars, which we don't want to talk about, and the very sad deaths of Leonard Nimoy and Albert Mazels, which we don't really have anything interesting to contribute other than we too are sad. So <laughs> let's just move on with uh, what's Mike watching? Yeah, uh, this is a segment that we haven't done in a while, a long, long time, it feels like now. Um and I think it, it, now is a good time to bring it back because, I, as we said, uh, I've been watching a bunch of film noir. Um, a little background on this is uh, last year in March, um, the girlfriend and I were talking about how we hadn't seen a Western in a long time. And we both are, are rabid fans of Westerns. And so we decided to de dedicate a whole month to watching Westerns, you know, some we'd seen before, most that we hadn't. And it was a blast. It was really a wonderful time. We saw a bunch of great films, a uh, few, few clunkers, but you know, uh, and then after that we said, well, we got to do that again. And I, and I suggested noir because, you know, I've seen the big name stuff, but I, I feel like it's a genre that I, there, there are so many films uh, out there um, in that genre over that, you know, decade and a half that they were being made um, that I haven't seen. So long story short, watching a bunch this month uh and the two best that i've seen so far in this first week um the first one is directed by john farrow director of the film we were just speaking about uh and it's called the big clock and um it's based on a book that uh, i read a few years ago and absolutely loved by kenneth fearing um and it's got i mean it's just stacked and and the putting this one up next to uh where danger lives they're they're not even comparable like this this one is running on you know it, it all cylinders firing uh it's got a great cast uh ray Milland is is the star but i mean charles lawton is the villain uh maureen o'sullivan is in there as as uh the wife of, of ray Milland. uh elsa lanchester's in there as a kooky painter uh, it's great. It's a great thriller that's set uh, almost exclusively for its second half in a closed off, you know, office building uh, of a magazine publisher. Um, and it's a great thriller. And I just I really, really got swept up in it. And it, and it follows the book really faithfully, um, which which was great because the book was fantastic. So uh, you've seen The Big Clock. Is that right, Sean? Yeah, I have. I have uh, uh, two questions for you. Yes. The first is, uh, is Charles Lawton's mustache in The Big Clock the worst thing that you've ever seen? <laughs> no, it's not, because it gives him a reason to go bring his face, or his, his uh, fingers up to his face all the time in a really, uh, you know, exaggerated uh, theatrical sort of way, which uh, just makes him even more melodramatically menacing. Um, so I appreciate that. But it is pretty hideous. I will, uh, I will admit to that. And and second, did you read the book, The Big Clock, because of that weird Brian Eno cult thing you're always talking about? <laughs> the Clock of the Long Now? I did not. Okay. Uh, the, the, the book was actually recommended to me by um, a colleague of mine who is a huge film noir fan, and he actually has been feeding me film noir titles um, in preparation for this month. And so um, I appreciated that, and, and, and I was excited to finally get around to the film and see that it was... Um, as good as, as as I expected it to be. Yeah, uh, I, I like that movie. I like uh, the remake uh, from the the late '80s with uh, with Kevin Costner and Gene Hackman. Uh, no Way Out is also very good. I've not seen that. 
Um, I was thinking of, good. I thought of Die Hard a lot uh, yeah. during this, where it's another, you know, thriller, uh, you know, trapped in an office building. I think they, those would work well as a, a double feature. Uh, the second film, uh, of the two favorites from this week, uh, it's it was Samuel Fuller week uh, as I think it was your uh, rep pick last week on the show. Yes. Um, at the Grand Illusion in in Seattle, and uh, they showed on sixteen millimeter uh, one showing, one night only, uh, which was a couple days ago. They ran the Naked Kiss, which I saw for the first time, and Ooh. absolutely, I mean, obviously, but gosh, what a treat! I mean. Watching it, you know, it's so broad and brash and just packed to the gills with with uh, melodrama. I mean, it's just great and it's it's cheap and rough and 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 it it builds this crescendo and you know something horrible is about to happen, but you have no idea exactly what it's going to be, and then it comes and it just is a sucker punch. And did you did, did you know how it opens before you saw it? I knew, uh, so I was familiar with the, um, I didn't know that that was the beginning, but I was familiar with the bald, uh, assault. Sure. To, yeah. So, um, but it's I just, mean, it's just such an insane opening to a movie. Beautiful. Like if, 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 if you haven't seen it, it's, it's, uh, it's just with, uh, with Constance Towers basically just beating the shit out of the camera. Yeah, it's like a point of view shot. She's a prostitute fighting with her pimp, and and it's it's right there in your face, and it's it's one of the the best of all film noir openings. It's it's amazing. It's, it's really wonderful. And then in the middle of it, her wig falls off, and she's completely bald. Yeah, um, and to see that to see that in the theater, not knowing what what to expect would would just be really really exciting. Oh, the whole movie is exhilarating. I mean. From every little touch in there, you know, uh, she gets off the bus when she comes to the small town that uh, that the movie's set in, and uh, she gets off the bus and there's she's there's a theater uh, in the background and they're showing Shock Corridor, you know, I mean like little mm-hmm. things like that, uh, just really you know ramp it up and um, it's just it, there's so much you know life. It's so it's such a vibrant movie uh, and. It's it's a Sam Fuller movie through and through, and uh, I was really glad to see it. And it was you know a good crowd uh, out there for it. You know, nice. I'd say yeah, I'd say Grand Illusion was you know two thirds full. Um, right Did you get for, to watch the documentary too, or just the the Naked I did Kiss? not. No, I yeah, I had to work uh, early the next day, so I didn't stick around for uh, a, a Fuller Life, which you saw. Uh, yeah. You reviewed it for uh, Seattle Screen Scene. Yeah, uh, it's 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 really neat. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's one I, I definitely you know regret not getting a chance to uh, see when, when it played this week. But say la vie. Uh, but I've got plenty more movies to watch uh, this month, and I and I hope some of them are as as good as the those two. So let's move on now and talk about uh, our person of the week. Mr. Robert Mitchum, star of both of our films and and star of many films noir, as you as you said, uh, probably the most famous of them being Out of the Past, um, when, which could be the arguably the quintessential film noir. Um, Spoiler. Oh, oh, is that going to be your essential? <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> 
but Mitchum also, you know, he he had a varied career. He he didn't just do films noir. He he was always kind, you know, over the course of his what fifty year career, longer mm-hmm. than that, a little longer than that. Uh, he was always a kind of you know tough guy, whether or not it was in a film noir kind of thing. Um, he did westerns. Famously, his his final screen performance is in uh, "You're My Favorite." Uh, Film of the '90s or close to it, uh, Jim Jarmusch's uh, Dead Man. Yeah, which we talked about way back on episode two. Yes, of, of this the George Anders show. Uh, and it's a great. I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of great actors had a kind of sad final role. You know, Orson Welles is always made fun of for voicing Unicron in the Transformers movie. But hey, if you're gonna go out with you know a, a bit part in uh, Dead Man. You're, you're golden. <laughs> uh, and he's great in it, too, for that, you know, that brief scene or two that he's in there. Um, but, yeah, Mitchum, I find Mitchum is a he's a very interesting uh, presence, a very unique. I think he looks very interesting for, for one thing. He's got those really sleepy eyes. Uh, you know, he's got the, the kind of uh, double chin going on or the, uh, what do what they call that? It's like a cleft chin or cleft dimpled, chin, dimpled chin. Yeah, dimpled chin. Um, you know, I, w- I wouldn't call him conventionally handsome, um, but he's magnetic. Every, you know. He... My, my wife doesn't think he's attractive at all. Uh, that was her big problem with uh, uh, The Grass is Greener, uh, a Stanley Don in romantic comedy with... Uh, where where Deborah Carr is married to Cary Grant and cheats on him with Robert Mitchum, she just could not imagine an, a world in which anyone would do that. Well, uh, that's fair. I mean, I I I. You think he's hot? He's you know he's got uh, he's got something. He's got mystique. He's he's masculine he's yeah i mean he's he, he he's a big guy and he's he's always he's always calm he's always lazy uh he he always feels like he's totally in control even when he's falling apart uh you know i like that he's he's supremely confident i like that in a man <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I like robert, i like robert mitchum a lot he's one of my my favorite actors um when when did you first see a Robert Mitchum movie? Do you remember your first experience of of Mitchum? Um, do I remember my first Mitchum? I I have a lot of really vivid memories of Mitchum, and I think I think the most memorable, the one that that left the most the biggest impression uh, early on was Night of the Hunter, um, which he just runs away with. Um, and I can't picture anybody else in that role as as uh, just a force of evil <laughs> that descends upon a you know a small town and a family. Um, I, I I can't think of any other actor that was working during that time period that could even come close to to pulling off that kind of thing. Oh, actually, speaking of, no, I I would going further back. But just as creepy, uh, Cape Fear. Mm. That, yeah, you know, I've never seen that. You've never seen it? No. Wow, well, uh, it's really it's good. I mean, I haven't seen it in twenty five twenty years. Um, but it's 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 solid. Have you seen the Scorsese remake? Oh yeah. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, well, he <laughs> talk about creepy. Uh, yeah, that I that was the I that would be my first impression of Mitchum is is uh, being uh, just terrified of him in Cape Fear. What about you? All right, uh, this 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 is a, an odd one. Uh, in 1990, Robert Mitchum starred in a family dramedy sitcom kind of thing in which he played a homeless guy that a group of rich orphans convinced to pretend to be their grandfather. <laughs> and it started as a TV movie, and then it became a series. And the, the kids were, uh, uh, two of the kids were Juliette Lewis and Ben Savage. <laughs> uh, and I, I remember the show, I, I, I believe I watched a few of the episodes, but what I most remember is, is a, a news story about it. It must have been on like Entertainment Tonight or something as like a, a fall preview, like review of the new series. And, and the story, I couldn't find like documentation for this on the internet, but this is the story as I remember it. It's that Mitchum had signed on to do this TV movie in order to make some money not realizing that in the contract was was a clause that said if the the movie was they could they could option the movie for a series and then he would be contractually obligated to star in the TV series and he had absolutely no interest in being in a TV series of this this crappy story so he was basically just sleepwalking sleepwalking for Robert Mitchum through the actual episodes and nine episodes of it uh were filmed. I think only six actually aired. But what that was that was my first impression of Robert Mitchum. Was, what was, was this thing called? A Family for Joe. <laughs> and he played Joe. <laughs> wow. I've yeah. never heard of this before. I, yeah. I'm fascinated. So, so that was my first impression of Robert Mitchum, of a, a, a very old actor who didn't give a shit. <laughs> And it has held up through every film I've seen him in. Right, yeah. <laughs> he was a young actor who didn't give a shit. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, wow, that's a powerful first impression. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, 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 I love Mitch. I, I will watch him in, in anything. He is, he is, without a doubt, one of my favorite all-time actors. Do you have like a do you have like a favorite like under the radar Mitchum performance like something that that people may not know like you know everyone knows Night of the Hunter Out of the Past Cape Fear Well you know I mean I was looking at my uh letterbox page for Mitchum today and you know most of the stuff I've seen him in is is the big stuff. And he had a lot of big stuff. I mean we've already rattled off like half a dozen titles that you know any one of them would kind of make him, uh, you know, a bona fide, you know, movie star for life kind of thing. You know, I mean, he'd be remembered if he only did Out of the Past, he'd be remembered for it. If he only did Night of the Hunter, he'd be remembered for it. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, but his later stuff, as we said, like Dead Man, uh, love him in that. Um, and I recently rewatched uh, Scrooged, uh, the Bill Murray uh film from 88 i think uh and he's yeah. not in it he's not in it much but um you know he he's got that same kind of ornery you know the later in life mitchum where he's kind of chewing marbles when he's talking uh kind of thing uh which once again is glimpsed in dead man 
And he's great. He's, you know, he's not as... Bobcat Goldthwait runs away with that movie. But Robert Mitchum, he's runner-up to Bobcat Goldthwait. What about you? That That is a good one. I, I loved I loved Scrooge. I, I saw it a lot. I haven't seen it probably in, in 25 years. but uh, And I don't really remember him in it. But... Uh, but that is a, a good movie, as I recall. Uh, my pick is, is uh, I'm going to go deep into the Mitchum vault here and go with Holiday Affair from 1949, which is, is utterly atypical for him. It's a, it's a romantic comedy with, uh, with Janet Leigh in which uh, Mitchum is a, uh, is a veteran who works at a department store. And during Christmas, he uh, he meets Janet Lee, who is a single mom. Uh, I believe she's a widow, also because of the war. And uh, they begin a, a, a friendship. Her her boyfriend gets jealous. There's, you know, some, you know, light comedy that follows, and eventually they end up together. And it's it's just an utterly innocuous, totally sweet, perfectly fine movie of the the kind that is is really unique nowadays and it's like it's something that that you know in, during the studio era hollywood would just churn out you know a dozen of these movies every year but they're like impossible to find anymore and, and but it's just it's nice it's a nice movie so, i really enjoy it so for you and me, for some reason, uh, mixing Robert Mitchum and Christmas just works really well. Yeah, I didn't think of that. Maybe uh, <laughs> it's like a, a Mitchum as Santa Claus kind of thing. There you go. Yeah, the the story with Holiday Affair is uh, it, it was released in 1949, and apparently uh, Howard Hughes forced him to do it because earlier that year he had been arrested for a marijuana possession, and so this was like supposed to rehabilitate his image. Uh, I think it's safe to say that it didn't work. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, he's, he's good. He's charming. And, and Janet Lee. Janet Lee. There you go. Yeah. Well, getting, steering it back now to, uh, the, Mitchum's the forte. Films, the, yeah, I mean, Mitchum's forte, the stuff that he's known for, you know, uh, the, I, the genre he's probably best suited for, uh, our cinema essential this week is film noir. Um, and there's once again, like Mitchum's career, there are so many classic, iconic, you know, towering achievements in, in film noir, um, from 1941 to 1958. We're not going to talk about neo-noir. We're not going to talk about, you know, updates to noir, the, like, uh, Coen brothers, man who wasn't there, which I will talk about at the drop of a hat. Mm-hmm. We're talking about stuff from the heyday, the real, you know, kitten caboodle here of film noir. Uh, and unfortunately, I think I spoiled your choice <laughs> for the essential film noir. But maybe tell me, tell me a little bit about your favorite film noir, there, Sean. Uh, it's it is out of the past, uh, the 1947 uh, Jacques Tourneur film with with Robert Mitchum that. Uh, uh, it's it, it to me. I think I think you you hit the nail on the head when you said that that Mitchum was like perfectly suited for film noir, and and he is, 
you know, it's it's either him or or Humphrey Bogart, and I prefer Mitchum as a, a noir hero. Like he he is too. he is more noir to me. Like like Bogart has this kind of like wounded romanticism about him that you know is is present in 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 certain kinds of noir. But but Mitchum has more of just kind of the the blank cynical emptiness that I think is like the the true heart of what makes noir so so fascinating and and out of the past is like the the ultimate expression of that it's 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 got just this complicated you know plot with a with a flashback structure where he has this uh where he's hired by kirk douglas to track down uh his uh douglas's girlfriend wife played by jane greer mitchum and greer fall in love and then she ends up killing mitchum's friend and then it returns to the present where everybody is trying to set Mitchum up and he's not sure who is trying to do it. He just knows that he's completely doomed because of, you know, this horrible woman. And it's, it's really funny. It's really dark and it's just, it's beautiful. And it's my favorite film noir. And I think it is, it is the quintessential film noir to me. It's it's fantastic. It really is. It's a great choice. It's one I considered um, absolutely. Uh, but as you you know said, Mitchum kind of epitomizes the genre, um, at least for the male archetype that that we get in in the film. Uh, there, there's the flip side. There's the femme fatale. There's there's the woman that's up to no good that brings down a man, and there have been numerous fine fine actresses that have portrayed some form of that character uh but none as good as barbara stanwyck in billy wilder's double indemnity which to me you you can't do better than that it's billy wilder raymond chandler writing a screenplay together fred mcmurray plays a sap who falls for the greatest actress uh, around uh, and Barbara Stanwyck just runs circles around everybody uh, for her own ends. And on top of it, you get, and, and I think, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say he's forgotten when people talk about this movie cause he's, he's so crucial to it, but as a bonus, you get Edward G. Robinson who he, he's the best thing in the movie. He's so, he's so freaking good in it. He's so great in that movie. And I, I was lucky enough, um, the last time I saw this was over the summer when I was in Paris. Uh, they were running a film noir festival at a, a theater called the Luxor, uh, I believe was the name. And uh, they were showing Double Indemnity. And, you know, it was in English with French subtitles. And I said, I, 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 screw the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> screw the Louvre. Forget the Mona Lisa. We're going to go see Double Indemnity, uh, and it's a it's a movie. I think I you made the right choice. I think I did too. I mean, uh, seeing it with an audience, uh, it was you know what's interesting about it though was uh, I've never been on this side of the the fence with um, the audience for the most part was reading the subtitles obviously. Mm. And I was not. I was watching the movie because I can't you know read or or hear you know speak French or anything. Uh, and so the dialogue would, you know, sometimes the, the words spoken on screen would, would be said shortly after the, the dialogue was on written on the screen. So people in the audience would laugh like a moment or two before me because the joke hadn't come out yet or something like that. Uh, it was, it was a weird disconnect, but anyway, that's a side story. Double indemnity is perfect. 
I love it. I think it's, uh, I've seen it countless times and it's great every single time. Um, it's, it's just a perfect entertainment. And, uh, I think it's, it is uh, the up it, uh, it's a quintessential film noir. It is great. It's, it's, it's an amazing movie. The, the one problem I have with it is don't say Fred McMurray. No, I, I love Fred McMurray. Okay. Uh, is, uh, is it's it's intentionally bad, but I still I, I it still really bugs me. It's uh it's Barbara Stanwyck's wig. Oh no! It's so bad. It's Aww. it's so awful. I think it's charming. Oh, it's so it's so it's so bad. <laughs> well, I understand. I can see what you're saying, but she transcends the bad wig. She's oh yeah, that. she's. She's that good. Yeah, she's she's uh, the best actress in in movie history. So. Yeah, she's 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 a peach. So with that, we're gonna uh, transition now to our final discussion uh, of the day. Uh, here's a clip from uh, Dick Richards' 1975 Raymond Chandler adaptation. Farewell, my lovely. I was trying to stabilize below the belt when this guy, the size of the Statue of Liberty, walks up to me. What are you, a cop? No, I'm your fairy godmother. I started to walk away. Private Dicks, huh? When a hand I could have sat in took hold of my shoulder. What's your name? Marlowe, what's yours? Moose, Marlowe. Get down! He didn't bat an eye. Fear wasn't built into his giant frame. I want you to work for me. You let me guess. You want me to try to find the two guys who were trying to shoot you, huh? I want you to find my Velma. I ain't seen her in seven years. She ain't wrote six. Where the hell have you been for seven years? In the can. The Great Ben bank robbery. Eighty grand. I did it solo. Ain't that something? Yeah. I want you to find my Velma. Look, man, six years, that's a long time not to hear. She'll have a reason. I'm sure she will. Why the hell were they shooting at you? Maybe we ought to go to Florian's. That's the last place my Velma worked. What was she like, this, um, Velma? Shoot. That's something to go on. We can argue about, you know, the quintessential, the greatest uh, film noir, you know, till the cows come home. You know, I could I could flip everything I said in the last thing and talk about, you know, any number of films that, that are equally as good as Double Indemnity. But when it comes to crime fiction, uh, mystery fiction, pulp fiction, uh, I, I think it's inarguable that the greatest writer um, of them all is Raymond Chandler, um, whose novels starring Detective Philip Marlowe, um, I think, are unsurpassed. I, I think they're just amazing. I've read, all, I've read them all. I read them all in one year um, and just loved them. Uh, the writing is fantastic. And obviously, I'm not alone because his work has been um, adapted time and again. Uh, famously, The Big Sleep, uh, which was another contender for me, um, directed by Howard Hawks. 
uh, based on the first Philip Marlowe novel, is a great film noir. Uh, Farewell, My Lovely, the second of the Marlowe books, uh, has actually been adapted three times. Uh, the first time is a loose adaptation uh, starring George Sanders from 1942, <laughs> The Falcon Takes Over, which I have not seen. Um, I actually had like all of the Falcon movies saved on the TiVo, but I, I think I've I've since erased them. Ah, I didn't know one that I didn't know that one was based on the, a Chandler book, though. Well, the thing, that, the thing that intrigues me the most about it, besides the fact that uh, it's George Sanders, hmm. uh, is that the character Moose Malloy, who we'll we'll discuss, I'm sure, as we get into our, our uh, in depth talk here in a second uh is played by ward bond in that one mm. which i think is a really interesting casting choice that, that is that is perfect casting because, isn't that great because ward bond is uh uh hmm. ward bond is the the moose malloy of uh mid-century american politics of course absolutely <laughs> uh after the Falcon takes over two years later, uh, murder, my sweet came out, um, which is, is from what I gather, I mean, I've seen this one, but I can't compare it to Falcon takes over since I haven't seen that one. Uh, but that one is actually a Philip Marlowe story. Uh, Marlowe's played by Dick Powell in that. Um, it's kind of a controversial film. Some people think Dick Powell doesn't, isn't a good Marlowe. Um, I actually really like that movie, um, uh, myself. Uh, Chandler said that, that Dick Powell, if I remember right, Chandler said that, that Dick Powell came the, the closest to his conception of Philip Marlowe. And I, I don't disagree. And I want to get into the conception of what Philip Marlowe is uh, as we talk about 1975's film, Dick Richards' Farewell, My Lovely, which is the first film uh, to actually use the, the title. Uh, Murder, My Sweet was uh, famously changed the title because uh, the studio feared that everybody would think it was a lighthearted musical uh, if it was called Farewell, My Lovely. So they changed it to Murder, My Sweet. And, uh, and that was because Dick Powell was starring in it and that was his, exactly. his star persona. Right, exactly. So 1975, long after film noir, you know, ceased to be, you know... Uh, churned out by the dozens uh, from the studio system. Uh, Robert Mitchum, who's decades into his career um, at this point, uh, takes on the role, the iconic, the most famous detective or private eye that you could imagine, uh, Philip Marlowe, in this film. Uh, it's fairly faithful to the book. Um, some minor things are changed. Um that, that that don't really affect too much of the plot. I mean, it's it you know it, it you get the general gist of it. It's pretty similar to the book. Marlowe is uh, at the beginning of the film. He's he's off on this you know kind of two bit job, and uh, at outside of a club, he meets this big, you know, lunkhead named Moose Malloy, which is a, a wonderful name. Uh, and Moose Malloy is this hulking beast of a man with very little intelligence who hires Marlowe to track down his girlfriend uh, who he hasn't seen for seven years because he was in prison uh, for a robbery that he committed. So Mitchum goes off on this kind of wild goose chase trying to track down this woman who may be in a mental institution. She may be dead. He gets into more and more convoluted uh, subplots trying to trying to track this woman down. Um, 
the film takes place in you know 1930s um, Los Angeles. Although it's shot in the 70s and it looks like it's shot in the 70s. <laughs> uh, oh, I don't know about that. Uh, there's kind of a 70s palette going on there. Mm. Um, but, you know, but it's, it's, it's fairly faithful. I'll, I'll give it that. So let me ask you this, Sean. You've seen Murder, My Sweet. Yes. Have you read Farewell, My Lovely? No. Oh, well. Let me ask you this. <laughs> Which film do you prefer? The Dick Powell or The Mitchum? Or do you prefer one actor over the other but prefer the other movie? Uh, I prefer both this movie and, and Robert Mitchum. Uh, but, but before you get to that, you, you, there, there's a lot that you packed into that intro that I... I want to respond to. Uh, <laughs> the first is that I, I don't know how clear-cut it is that Raymond Chandler is the greatest author. He's the greatest. Of, of hard-boiled fiction. Because while I, while I have only read one Chandler novel, uh, The Big Sleep, uh, I have read four of Dashiell Hammett's, and Dashiell Hammett is really good. Hammett's a hack compared to Chandler. Uh, I'm sorry. He's He's... he's no, I'm sorry. No contest. Uh, hang on. I, I want to find this quote. Oh, damn it. There was some really funny disparaging remark that Chandler made about Hammett, but I don't think I'm going to find it right away. But anyway, um, you know, Hammett was, a, you know, clearly a, a trendsetter and he, he blazed the path for Raymond Chandler. Um, but I think as a writer, um, I, even outside of, of the pulp genre, it's hard to beat Raymond Chandler. And I've read some of the people that came after him. I'm actually in the middle of some, uh, a Jim Thompson book right now, which is really, really, really good too. Um, but to me, Chandler's just a poet and, uh, you know, the plot, it depends, the plots of Raymond Chandler books, uh, are pretty inconsequential and that kind of extends to the movie adaptations of it. Uh, we've talked about, that, I think, The Big Sleep before on the show and how the plot doesn't really make all, all that sen uh, much sense, but it doesn't matter because of the world that is created in it. Um, but just writing-wise, Chandler, you can't beat Chandler. But anyway, what's the next bone you have to pick with me? Uh, yeah, Raymond, Raymond Chandler once wrote that Dashiell Hammett gave murder back to the people who really committed it. No, that's not it. Mm. Uh, Jim Thompson, by the way, is in Farewell, My Lovely as a small part. As, uh, as Mr. Sure. Grail. Yeah, as the judge, uh, Charlotte Rampling's uh, husband. Um, I actually don't remember what, what the rest of what you said was. Remember, I, I, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm podcasting under the influence of a concussion. But what, what I do want to say is, is that it, it, it did feel like the 1940s to me and that was actually like the most interesting thing about the movie to me is that this is a movie coming out in 1975 you know it's post the long goodbye it's post chinatown but it is so uh classical in it in its construction in its style and in, it, in its technique and it's it it felt to me like robert mitchum is you know at this point he's like in his in his 50s right 
but he's still making this kind of movie he was making 30 years earlier. So I felt like I was watching a man who was like trapped in the 1940s. And, and that gave, you know, this, the, the Marlowe character, you know, a whole other level of interest to me. Like, it's not just that Los Angeles of the forties is, is, you know, a hellish place where everyone is double crossing everyone else and nobody can be trusted and women are evil. But it's also that there's, there's literally no escape from him because even 30 years later, he's still there. He gets older, but film noir stays the same. That's a really interesting take. I appreciate that. Um, and I agree with that to to an extent. My problem with this movie, and I feel weird bringing it up because we just rambled on about how much we both love Robert Mitchum, is going back to that quote you said from Chandler, Mitchum does not embody my perception of Philip Marlowe. Mm-hmm. Um, as I, I wrote, I, I said in my little letterbox review of this, um, Harry Dean Stanton shows up here uh, as a uh, a very um, annoying cop who's constantly being, you know, undercut by Robert Mitchum. Uh, to me, Harry Dean Stanton personifies the character more in my mind. And I know that's a failing on my part. And I like Mitchum. And I, and I think he's, I mean, he's fine here. It's just, there's a disconnect with my conception of the character. And I do think Dick Powell actually does make a better Philip Marlowe. He doesn't necessarily make a better actor. He doesn't necessarily make sure, a better sure. lead, but he makes a better Philip Marlowe than Robert I'm, Mitchum. Does I'm, I'm trying to imagine Harry Dean Stanton in a Marlowe movie. And the only image I, I can generate is repo man. Sure, absolutely. I think that's perfect. Okay, I, I I would watch that. I love I love Harry Dean Stanton, and and one of the the great things about watching American movies in the seventies is how often Harry Dean Stanton shows up. Eighties too. Yeah, in just these these small throwaway parts, but he's he's he is amazing also, and yeah, I I, ever- I could see that. Yeah. This so- this movie has has a remarkable cast. For, you know, for even, you know, for a 1975 film, it's got it's got lots of, you know, contemporary actors like like Charlotte Rampling and Harry Dean Stanton. It's also, you know, of course, got uh, Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. uh, Pre Rocky. Pre Rocky with with no lines, as was was typical for for early Stallone. He was never allowed to talk on screen. Um, But it's also got uh, like old school uh Hollywood people like like Mitchum and uh and John Ireland who plays uh Mitchum's uh buddy on the police force uh Nolte which you know of course uh I just kept thinking Mick Nolte but uh John Ireland of course was in uh a number of movies through the the 40s and the 50s um uh probably most most famously uh Red River the Howard Hawks films where, where he and uh, Montgomery Cliff show each other their guns and, um, it gets hot. Yeah. Uh, he was also, he was in, uh, uh, the Samuel Fuller, I shot Jesse James. He played Robert Ford in that. So yeah, it's, it's, it's this weird, it's this weird mix that is, is totally out of time yet. It's, it, it does feel like a 1970s movie in a lot of ways. Uh, what do you think about the fact that it's it was produced by Jerry Bruckheimer? It was, was it was so... like his his uh, second or third film he ever produced. Yeah, uh, I obviously Bruckheimer became Bruckheimer later. 
You know what I mean? So like I was, you know, in the beginning, I was like, oh, my God, like during the credit sequence, I was like, what's a Bruckheimer, you know, Chandler adaptation going to be like? You know what I mean? Um, And obviously this is a lot more toned down than uh, we're actually going to be talking. We'll talk about this later, but we're going to be talking about a Bruckheimer production uh, on the next show. Uh, yeah, which I mean, I think it'd be more indicative of what, of what he's capable of. But yeah, it may it may just be a coincidence. But I, you know, when I think of, of Jerry Bruckheimer, I think of like of you know bigness of of sensationalism, and there is some of that in this. And I don't, you know, it's 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 probably not related to him at all. I you know, I don't want to make a case for Jerry Bruckheimer as the auteur of this movie, but I see I see little bits of that there i can see where he went from here to there yeah i, I could make a connection sure i could make a connection to it i you know if his name was scrubbed off of the opening credits though i would not have been able to say jerry bruckheimer had a sure. hand in this you know what i mean but Definitely. Uh, yeah absolutely you can see the uh the bits of bruckheimer you know coming out there um well what do you think about dick richards i know nothing about this guy uh he only directed uh seven features it looks like um, this was, uh, right smack dab in the middle there. Actually, no, this is early on. This is, I guess yeah. he did two movies in 75, uh, Rafferty and the Gold Dust Twins being the other. Uh, yeah. and also, uh, the Culpepper Cattle Company, which was Bruckheimer's first movie that he produced. So apparently they had, uh, and he also produced, uh, Rafferty and the Gold Dust Twins. So, so clearly Jerry Bruckheimer and Dick Richards had some kind of, uh, partnership going on. Uh, I don't know anything about him either, but uh, we did just coincidentally a few weeks ago watch uh, the last movie he directed, which was the movie that that basically, as I understand the story, uh, uh, destroyed his career, which was an adaptation of William Goldman's novel Heat, starring Burt Reynolds, that is at times a really interesting movie and at times laughably terrible. Uh, and it's unclear who is actually responsible for what. Uh, I kind of skimmed through the book. My, my wife had read it, but she hasn't read it for years. I, I skimmed through the book, and it looks to have very little relation to what's actually on screen. And apparently Reynolds and, and Richards uh, uh, did not get along at all. There may have been like fist fights on the set, and Richards uh, was eventually fired or, or walked off, and William Goldman basically refuses to talk about the movie. <laughs> So, <laughs> so that is my other experience of Dick Richards. But on the basis of of this film, I would say that he is a a competent director. This is this is a much better movie than that. Yeah, no, this is is very competent. Uh, yeah, I think I think this is I think it is solid. You know, um, and and you know, all bias aside towards Chandler and my conception of of uh, the character and all of that stuff. This is uh, this is a pretty good adaptation of, of the book. Um, the, once again, the plot kind of is secondary to, Mm. to what's going on. Um, it's very convoluted. Uh, there are red herrings and there's, you know, all these things kind of thrown in, uh, kind of, and yet yet it turns out to be so obvious in the end. Right. But, um, there, there's a bunch of stuff that could be considered superfluous to the plot, um, but but works to create you know for the overall effect of the film, uh, as it were. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
Marlowe in in this film doesn't really do much detecting. He is more he is more acted upon than he actually kind of seeks out and and discovers things. I he find. like he's he's, he's he sh- he shows up in a place and somebody hits him in the head. Right. And then he's drugged and he yeah. he wakes up. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> and the, and yeah, I mean he uncovers the conspiracy just by connecting all of the different people that have beat him up. Well, that's what's the funny part is is you know there's this wraparound you know um, bookend to it where he's in a hotel room talking uh, to John Ireland and kind of recounting the tale of what's going on and Ireland is is coming to see him because he's like uh, I forget how many it's like seven people have died yeah and uh, Rob and uh, Philip Marlowe is at the scene at every single one of them and and John Ireland's like you know I. We really got to do something, you know, <laughs> about you because you happen to be where all the trouble is. And that's basically what happens in this movie is, like you said, Mitchum shows up somewhere. Someone dies. Cops show up. Mitchum goes to, on to the next place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of Charlotte Rampling? Uh, I thought Charlotte Rampling was uh, OK. I mean, she's she's the better uh, female lead of the two films we're talking about this week. Um, it's her character is a bit implausible. Um, (laughs) and it's, it's, so it's, it's a a, kind of a tough role to play. Um, I don't know if I necessarily want to spoil it by describing why she, uh, yeah, I mean, that's not necessary. I mean, she, she, she really has almost nothing to do. Yeah. On, on on film uh, the thing that was that was striking to me like well first of all I, I think in, in general Charlotte Rampling is a, a really good actress and it's kind of a waste that she she has nothing to do in this movie but the other thing is like her her introduction in this close-up I, I swear to God is the closest I've ever seen to to Lauren Bacall and to have and have not mm. she just looks she captures that that kind of it that Bacall had. In, in that movie yeah, more than anyone I've ever seen. No, that's, that's uh, yeah, that's a good comparison. I can totally see that. And I, and I think that's what she's going for. And it's, it's completely absurd how she's trying to seduce, you know, aged Robert Mitchum. Right. Uh, in the way that like, you know, the big sleep is, is comical the way that every, every woman that, that Humphrey Bogart's film, Philip Marlowe meets uh, instantly wants to have sex with him. Uh, it's, you know, it's fun in, in the big sleep. Uh, it's just, it's just weird when it's Robert Mitchum in 1975. In the, yeah. In the seventies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause he, cause he seems so uninterested in it anyway. You know yeah, what I mean? He's like, just, he's just, he's tired. You know, yeah, he just wants to take a nap. Yeah. So <laughs> someone please hit him over the head yeah. so, he can, so he can get some sleep <laughs> for crying out loud. Yeah. But yeah. you know, what, what are you going to do? Acting. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, the only the only other thing I really have to say is um, I like I like the the colors of this movie. Like it it it, it has you know like you, you you said it was like the the nineteen seventies kind of color palette, and I think a lot of that is is just kind of the film stock that is used in the seventies. Like it, the it has like this kind of dusty beige color that you also get in Long Goodbye and Chinatown, but the the night scenes. Are are really really neon red, and I really like that. I think that it uh, it brought 
you know, a lot of, uh, it brought interesting color to the film <laughs> that, uh, that the, the Roman Plansky and, and Robert Altman films are, are kind of intentionally removing from their films in order to, to approximate a kind of black and white style. Sure. Uh, I like that, that, that Richards here is just kind of going like th- with the full, you know, crazy, crazy neon. Well, and sorry, I, I hate to say it, but might be Bruckheimer. It, it might be. I mean, I, I think that's kind of like the most Bruckheimerian element of it. Uh, I don't know. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. That's kind of all you can, you can finish now. Unless you have something, did you have something more to say about Moose Malloy? No. Or did you already talk about him and I wasn't listening? I just called him a lunkhead. Yeah. I, I, my favorite thing about Moose Malloy is the name Moose Malloy. Like, mm-hmm. um, Chandler novels, as much as I love them, the plots kind of bleed together and all that stuff. But for some reason, the name Moose Malloy rises to the top. I, I cannot, that name will stick with me till my dying breath. Uh, it, I it think is, it's perfect. It is a great name. And I, and I really like Jack O'Halloran as Moose Malloy. As just yeah. this, he's just this giant force that nobody can deal with. Yeah. And he's got a one-track mind. He yeah. wants to find his girl. Yeah, and you see, and you see Mitchum standing up against Harry Dean Stanton, and Mitchum just towers over Stanton, and then against Moose Malloy, Moose Malloy makes Robert Mitchum look like Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. Yeah. <laughs> well, with that, that's our discussion of Farewell, My Lovely. We're gonna hear uh, another lovely tune from Mr. Mitchum. Uh, this one is about the sun, I believe. <laughs> 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 Which I don't think Robert Mitchum has actually ever seen. No, no, <laughs> not at least not with uh, some very dark sunglasses. Right. Sunny. Yesterday my life was filled with rain. Sunny. You smiled at me and really eased the pain. Now the dark days are done and the bright days are here. My sunny one, shining so sincere Sunny one, so true, I love you Sunny, thank you for the sunshine that you gave Sunny, thank you for the love you brought my way You gave to me your all in all Feeling ten feet tall Sunny, one so true I love you Sunny Thank you for the truth You let me see Sunny Thank you for the facts From A to Z My life was torn Like headlong sand Then a rock was born when we held hands Sunny, one so true, I love you Sunny, thank you for the smile upon your face Sunny, thank you, thank you for that gleam that blows the breeze You're my spark of nature's fire You're my sweet, complete desire 
sunny one so true I love you Sunny Yesterday my life was filled with rain Sunny You smiled at me and really, really eased the pain The dark days are done and the bright days are here My sunny one shining so sincere Sunny one so true I love you I love you Well, that pretty much wraps up this episode of The George Sanders Show. Uh, We are going to be taking a brief break um, until April uh, because at the end of the month, I'm uh, heading off to Canada for uh, some rest and relaxation uh, in a cabin in the woods uh, on a lake. It'll be quiet. I'll have my dog. It'll be fun. Uh, But I will not probably have internet connectivity. So... um, we can't do the stupid show unless Sean, you want to drive five hours north uh, to record at Lakeside with me. But nope, <laughs> you're going to be busy anyway, uh, which I think we'll talk about in just a second here. But when we return, uh, we're planning to record on April seventh ish. Uh, probably have the show posted the day after or so. We are going to talk about uh, two films tying in with the release of uh, Fast. Wait, what's it called? Furious Seven. Fast, Fast and Furious 7, I think. It's the seventh of the Fast and the Furious fan franchise. Yeah, seventh, seven Fast, seven Furious. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to talk about two car racing movies. Uh, Howard Hawks's Red Line 7000, which has a you know similar title, 7000 there. Yeah, it's uh, like it's the same movie. I'm sure it is, you know. Uh, and then speaking of Jerry Bruckheimer, we will be discussing Tony Scott's film Days of Thunder starring Tom Cruise. Uh, that should be quite a fun show, I think. I'm, I'm uh, very excited. I, I, can, I, I can't wait you. for April 7th. <laughs> I know you can. Uh, it, b- between now and then, uh, I I haven't talked about the New Beverly in quite a while. I, I don't think I've talked about it since the kind of controversial changeover there with uh, Benefactor, Quentin Tarantino kind of taking over the reins uh, of the establishment and uh, running stuff from his personal collection there. Um, But I'm going to talk about it now because this month, Mr. Tarantino uh, is programming a whole month dedicated to the greatest decade uh, the world will ever see, the 1990s, and uh, running a whole bunch of different kinds of double features uh, throughout the month. But on March 10th, uh, on 35 millimeter, he'll be running a Wong Kar Wai double feature of Days of Being Wild and Chungking Express, uh, which should be applauded uh, regardless of any kind of weird business shenanigans that are going on at that establishment. <laughs> yes. Sean, would you like to talk about something that's coming up? This is this is pretty exciting. You, uh, yeah, you're a modest man, but I, I'm just gonna toot your horn there for you. Uh, well, I think we talked about it briefly on the show, but uh, there was a Ho Shao Shen retrospective going around that was not coming to Seattle until one, one man got on the Twitter and started complaining. One, <laughs> one angry, angry man. And that man was you, Sean. 
and then completely coincidentally and unrelated to that one person sure. complaining on the internet. Sure. Uh, yeah, the 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 Hoshashen series is coming in part to Seattle. Uh, it starts uh, March nineteenth and runs through the end of the month uh, at three different venues. Uh, the the Grand Illusion and the Northwest Film Forum are are each showing uh, the same five films on thirty five millimeter, and to kind of supplement uh, some of the films that are that are not included in our version of the retrospective, uh, our, our friend Matt over at, at Scarecrow Video is is showing five additional Ho films uh, on video there for free, and I am going to be. Uh, Introducing the movie that kicks it off at Scarecrow, uh, uh, Ho's 1983 film, The Boys from Feng Kui. And I will also be introducing some of the shows at the Film Forum, which are yet to be determined. So that'll be neat. That'll be pretty darn neat. Uh, I would like to also plug, since we're going to be gone for a month, uh, I am programming, uh, and I had help from you coming up with some titles and stuff, uh, a Western series uh, at the Seattle Public Library, the university branch of Seattle Public Library, right across the street from Scarecrow Video, mm. uh, starting uh, March 30th, running uh, Monday nights uh, into May. We'll be running uh, Westerns uh, for free because it's the library and the library rules. Uh, we'll be running Destry Rides again, uh, Fort Apache, Ride the Wild Country, or Ride the High Country, excuse me, Sam Peckinpah's film, uh, for a few dollars more, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and the film we talked about earlier in the show, Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man. So those will be playing. Maybe I'll be introducing those while Sean's across the street introducing Ho Shao Shen films. Uh, it's going to be a wild party in Seattle. Uh, <laughs> a lot of fun, free movies coming out there. Uh, to find out more about anything that we're involved with, uh, you can find it uh, on our website, thegeorgesandershow.blogspot.com. Uh, you can email us with questions uh, at thegeorgesandershow at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at geosandershow, and uh, we're plugging it every show now because what the hell, it's all tied together. Uh, we write weekly for seattlescreenscene.com where we list all of these shows, every free show, every interesting rep show, every art house show, all coming down the pipeline, playing in the Seattle area. It's all on there uh, for your reading pleasure. And uh, Sean and I, we watch too many movies. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, thanks for listening. Uh, we're going to take it away with uh, my favorite Philip Marlowe, George Sanders. Take it away, yeah. George. He didn't actually, well, he didn't actually play Philip He didn't Marlowe. play Philip Marlowe and you haven't seen that movie. I know, but he's my favorite anything. So he, if he if he ever actually had played Philip Marlowe, he would be your favorite. There you go. Yes. Thank thank you for saving me there, Sean. He also he would be he would be your favorite uh, Ethan Edwards. He would be your favorite <laughs> Han Solo. He would be your favorite Indiana Jones. It's true. Yes. Uh, I can't deny it. He'd be my favorite. He'd be uh, your favorite Doctor Zhivago. He'd, <laughs> he'd be your favorite Rhett Butler. He'd be your favorite Scarlett O'Hara. He would, he yes. would, but he wouldn't be my favorite Sanders because there's only one, and that's the Colonel. Mm. Finger he'd be, good. he'd be your favorite Colonel Sanders. <laughs> 
He should have been an honorary colonel. You wanna you wanna fry George Sanders and eat him. Now we're just getting weird. Now now we're really seeing the ramifications of that concussion, Sean. All right. Uh, so think... without further ado, take it away, George. You're a better singer than Robert Mitchum. That is true. We'll see you next time. Just a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo, they still say I love you. On that you can rely. No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of date Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man and man must have his mate that no one can deny. It's still the same old story, a fight for love and glory, a case of do or die. The world will always welcome lovers as time.